30 books, 30 years. One man, no credentials. This is 30 by 30 on Burt's Books. Good day, brothers and sisters, comrades. Brett Bateman Lindsley here. If this is your first time listening in, I blog about books and other things over at www.bertreadsbooks.com. This is the 30 by 30 podcast in which I interact with books in a kind of long form, more exploratory way. Now today's book review will have a lot of that exploration and rambling because we are talking about God and we are talking about this concept of the death of God, which is some pretty serious stuff. So there's a lot of rabbit trails I want to take and I'm afraid Uh, there's much pontificating that I want to do. So before we jump into that, I want to remind you that if you're watching on YouTube, you can find recent episodes of the show in podcast form by searching for Burt's Books 30x30 on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you like what I do here, you can support me in a small way by checking out the link in the description of today's episode to my Amazon book wish list. If you see a book you want to give me to review, all you need to do is add that book from the list to your cart, and Amazon will give you the option to send me uh, that book at checkout. So I do appreciate that. Okay, so two of the things I talk about a lot on this show are Christianity and this idea of modernity. Modernity is this age of enlightened human reason that we are living in. Now, I've used both of those topics a lot on this show when looking at other books, but I don't think I've really addressed them in a super uh, explicitly direct way. And I thought this would be a good time to do just that because of this hugely popular podcast from the publication Christianity Today titled The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill that's been coming out over the last several months. Um, If you're living underneath a rock and haven't heard of that podcast, it basically follows the rapid rise to... uh, fame in the evangelical world of this pastor named Mark Driscoll, and it follows the expansion of his church into this massive mega-site or multi-site, you know, church in Seattle in the early 2000s. It also follows how in 2014 there were allegations of just pretty severely malfunctioning uh, leadership and a structure Uh, that allowed for um, basically verbal abuse and things like that. And it follows the church uh, breaking apart very quickly. And the podcast is just trying to diagnose what what went right when that church was growing, then what went wrong when it dissolved. Now, what's really kept my attention personally uh, is just some of the really good evangelical history that's being followed in that podcast. Specifically, uh, it's account of what's sometimes called the emerging church movement. Uh, This was a movement in the early 2000s. And what the emerging church movement was, um, 
well, why it was interesting to me is because it was a movement composed of these really strange bedfellows. You had theological liberals and theological conservatives, uh, pastors and theologians, and they were all trying in different ways to respond to questions posed by living in a modern world. So if you think back to 2000, uh, <laughs> try to remember, it was this age of world trade organization protests, right? Um, the book, The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman is at the top of the New York Times bestseller list for forever. Uh, and basically, it's just a time where people are realizing that they are in the dawning of a new age. There's this increasing interconnectedness of the entire world. And what it's doing is causing this rapid cultural flux because of the rapid exchange of ideas and the kind of blending of borders. And of course, uh, 9-11, September 11, 2001, plays a huge role in this era of change because Americans realize that you know, we aren't necessarily the, the sweethearts of the entire world like we thought we were. And we find out about these, these rich and ancient traditions like Islam that, you know, are very grounded in tradition, but that view themselves in very stark opposition, sometimes violent opposition to our ways of life here in the West. And so these pastors and these thinkers in the emerging church movement are realizing that, you know, aside from Christians just kind of insulating or cloistering themselves and cutting themselves off from the world, they are being forced to address this proliferation of knowledge in the world. And they're being forced to address this knowledge because it often calls into question a lot of the traditional understandings and ways of life associated with their religion. Um, the philosopher Charles Taylor puts it another way, or he points out that um, this this progress in the world, this interchange of ideas and stuff, it it makes doubt possible where it wasn't possible before. That's really profound. Um, there was a time in the world where individual cultures were not prone to doubt, but because of modernity, doubt is now available to us. So the idea here is not just that what we believe is challenged in the modern world, but that the fundamental structure, the way we believe, is radically transformed by the technologies and the methods of the modern world. Um, another good example of, of what's going on there is uh, the book Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe that you may have read in, in high school or uh, college, which is about you know a Nigerian uh, tribal leader who's trying to hold his traditional community together and his ways of life together as Europeans are colonizing uh, Nigeria and uh, basically importing European religion and importing European technologies very quickly into his land and rapidly changing things. And in that book, you can just Feel the ground shaking and splitting beneath that Nigerian leader's feet uh, because of those rapid changes. So, uh, again, using Charles Taylor, doubt about his way of life was not available to him, um, but the, the conditions of modernity make doubt possible.
So that book, you know, is just it's capturing the same part of the human condition in the modern world that is really present in American evangelical Christianity in 2000. And that's what the emerging church movement was responding to. Now, the emerging church movement eventually split into, on the one hand, a conservative camp. Um, and that conservative camp ends up just acting as if these big paradigm shifts uh, caused by the interconnected world really don't hit at the core of their beliefs. Um, so the changes that they end up making in the church are basically just you know, giving permission for the outer appearance of things to change. So you get conservative pastors with tattoos and piercings, and you get rock bands in church and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's still basically fundamentalist religion. And then on the other hand, you have the liberal camp of emergent leaders who, you know, kind of give up and just end up returning to be like mainline Protestant churches. And those are churches who are more or less acclimated to liberal society and modern society as it is. And they're basically okay with it. So that's all happening about 20 years ago now. And in my view, a lot of what is happening today within evangelical religion, if you're not paying attention, you should be. Um, there are some massive fissures going on within evangelical religion. And to me, it's kind of this culmination of those modern problems being recognized 20 years ago and then being shoved underneath the rug and forgotten. You know, we're not going to deal with that after all, right? And a lot of commentators today are noticing that, you know, evangelical Christians are basically repeating uh, the modernist fundamentalist uh, controversy that happened a hundred years ago. It, it feels a lot like the same thing is just happening all over again. Um, so, you know, it almost feels like we're, you know, just redoing a cycle today. And if you're interested in why that that seems to be repeating, you could read um, a book like Molly Worthen's The Apostles of Reason. It explains some of the reasons for what's repeating. But in a way, th there's also something slightly different happening this time around because um, there was this recognition of modernity's problems 20 years ago. And, you know, we're pretending that we didn't acknowledge those problems, uh, but that still exists. So it's kind of changing this iteration of modern people versus fundamentalists and how they are addressing each other. And so, you know, you might say that this time around, there is a renewed interest in moving towards a postmodern paradigm or a postmodern way of viewing the world. Now, if you don't regularly listen to this podcast, you might think that when I say there's a renewed interest in post-modernity, that I'm, you know, referring to some fringe set of people or a very niche interest, because you don't really hear people talking about this, right? But I think that the kinds of figures and themes that have defined our, uh, say, socially or social political culture, this hyper political culture in the United States um, since 2016, I very much think that 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 those figures and themes are the culmination of that postmodern project not being. Uh, completed by uh, groups like the emerging church in the early 2000s. I'm thinking about leaders like Donald Trump, of course, who uh, represents the more reactionary response to this crisis of modernity. 
You know, he is a person who embodies the sentiment that it would be so traumatic to to look the modern world in the face and deal with it that our response should be to bombastically deny the reality of these changes. Um, it's a mentality that says everything is okay if we can just convince ourselves that nothing has changed. So there's a kind of you know self-deception in that response to modernity. Now, on the flip side, you also have today's progressive groups like Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, that's the one that you know always comes to head. But there's all sorts of you know uh, progressive groups or progressive ideologies that basically have dogmas that functionally attempt to replace religion in that they provide the therapeutic effects that you get from having moral standards and rules. Like there's something very therapeutic about those structures and limitations. But the progressives have these, you know, very arbitrary rules, even while they are critiquing traditional ways of life. Um, so it's kind of like a, a a pretend attempt to deal with modernity. But just like Trumpism, it's another form of self-deception because if you're making these self-referencing totemic statements, it's just as arbitrary as any supernatural religion is. And it's just as open to modernity critiquing it, right? Which is why you get a lot of liberals who are uh, who are critiquing progressive ideas. They're saying, you know, wokeness or whatever you want to call it is just like a religion. Um, it's open to a modernist critique because it's so arbitrary. So you can see both of these groups, the progressives and the, you know, Trumpers spinning their wheels because they're products of a failed movement to deal with modernity in the early 2000s. So this kind of leads us to the postmodern problem, right? The postmodern dilemma is that the kinds of scientific critiques of religion and the the technologies that come out of the European Enlightenment end up cutting both ways um, against both supernatural and um, secular ways of understanding and justifying our ways of life and justifying our moral standards and habits. And this is where we get the philosophical idea of the death of God that you've heard me talk about if you listen to this show. And this was an idea that was used both by secular and Christian philosophers in the 19th century to describe the modern dilemma. Uh, so to remind you of what I've said before here, the death of God is not, it is not about whether a deity or a God exists or does not exist. It's not about atheists and believers. What the death of God concept does is to give a name to that experience of, of unease and doubt that is unique to people living in a modern world. And remember, modernity is just a name for the age or historical time frame that emerges because of the ways of thinking and experiencing the world that come out of the European Enlightenment and the age of reason. And that that way of thinking is different from, say, the Middle Ages or the ancient times where people were really enmeshed within the world and experiencing things um, very directly. The, the modern Enlightenment view of the world is one in which we realize we have this thing called a mind, right? And it allows us to separate ourselves from the world and attempt to view it objectively as if we were standing outside of it. 
And of course, that that change from being enmeshed in the world to being able to step outside of it and analyze it with our minds, that has just massive implications on the sciences um, that, of course, you know, you're familiar with. But today we're, we're a bit more interested in the spiritual or religious experience of, of modernity, what we're looking at with today's book. And sometimes you'll hear this, uh, this spiritual experience of modernity described as existentialism or nihilism or disenchantment. And those are uh, pretty technical terms for describing the way that the modern mindset makes us feel um, isolated, right, instead of participating in the world and enmeshed in it. We feel estranged from it, right? And uh, a lot of the reason a lot of philosophers um, and the reason I like the death of God concept is because it allows us to think about about what what modernity feels like, about the way that we are experiencing it. Um, the atheist uh, novelist Julian Barnes once uh, put it this way. He said, he said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And that's a good way of describing the feeling of the crisis that the emerging church movement was dealing with. And it's that renewed sense of crisis that we are seeing in the various strange conflicts that are boiling up, uh, you know, in evangelical circles post-2016. And really, I think uh, it's similar conflicts are emerging in the secular world for similar reasons as well. Okay, so book review, right? Book review. All that rambling uh, aside, enter today's book and its author. The book is The Divine Magician, The Disappearance of Religion, and The Discovery of Faith by Peter Rollins. Now, Peter Rollins was actually a member of this emerging church movement in the 2000s. And what's so interesting about Rollins is that he is the only figure from that movement I'm aware of who did not end up falling back into those pre-existing categories I talked about, right? Like most emerging people either ended up being a conservative fundamentalist or being back in the liberal mainline Protestant tradition after this emerging movement had kind of given up. And for Rollins, I think some of his insistence and perseverance and staying the course um, with addressing modernity has to do with his background. Uh, Rollins grew up in Northern Ireland uh, during this period of history called the Troubles. And this was uh, a period of history that lasts from about 1970 to 2000. And the, the Wikipedia version of this story is that the Troubles were a conflict between Irish nationalists who wanted Northern Ireland to be part of a, um, a united Republic of Ireland, and on the other hand, you had loyalists who wanted Northern Ireland to be part of the United Kingdom. Now, there is a lot of debate about what role religion played in this conflict, but it is true in the least case, that religion definitely fanned the flame of conflict because the loyalists were predominantly Protestants and the nationalists were predominantly Catholics. And so this, this conflict, the Troubles, was vicious and it was bloody and hateful. And, and it was primarily committed by Christians against each other, right? 
So Peter Rollins is growing up during the Troubles, and he's a a young man living in a non-religious home, but he briefly converts to a traditional, you know, non-denominational, evangelical uh, version of religion when he's a teenager. And today he he frequently talks about that time, uh, you know, with fondness, because he says that that religious conversion, for the first time, gave him a, a language and a community to talk about the real moral concerns of human life. And he still talks about, you know, secular Western culture as, you know, being kind of shallow. So, so he talks about that uh, conversion experience fondly. But at the same time, uh, it didn't take long for it to become apparent to him that some of the religious certainties of, of the religious factions in Ireland, precisely by virtue of their certainty about religious things, were driving the suicidal frenzy of the Irish Troubles. And so he also becomes a religious skeptic at the same time. So interesting character, this Rollins, uh, both uh, gaining a lot from religion and, and seeing a certain poison in it as well. So today, Rollins lives in the United States, and as I said, he was part of the emerging church movement. And he continues to this day to have a keen interest in American evangelicalism, because it is a very confrontational religious culture. Evangelicalism has traditionally seen itself as being, you know, surrounded and embattled by a hostile secular culture. So I think Rollins is interested in that confrontational nature of American evangelicalism because he thinks it stems from the 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 postmodern or the death of god experience the modern world is inherently confrontational because the the interconnectedness of the world brings these different rich cultures and traditions and worldviews into conflict or into antagonism and um Actually, Rollins is also very interested in Western secular culture for the same reason. It often sees itself as embattled by the fundamentalist religious people, and it's you know in, in defense of a certain materialistic, self-expressive way of life. But the the important thing here is that Rollins sees the specific kind of embattled spirit in American culture as an emotional reaction in which what Americans are actually trying to do is to pretend that they do not have all of these uncertainties and doubts that that their ways of life might actually be incorrect. And so, in a strange way, Rollins kind of, you know, he kind of admires that embattled sense that evangelicals have because the modern world is inherently confrontational. But he thinks it's misguided, um... It, it thinks that it's in a confrontation over facts that are certain and attainable instead of instead of leaning into a confrontation with the incredible uncertainty that defines life in the modern age. Uh, so, you know, in Ireland, uh, this led to bloodshed, but in the U.S., it, it's more led to this very shallow kind of 
soul-sucking culture of suspicion and conspicuous consumption that our political leaders and corporations are capitalizing on and manipulating in their own interest. So Rollins isn't a huge fan of that, and that's part of what he's responding to. So in this book, The Divine Magician, what Rollins is doing is playing the, the Christian theologian. He wants to convince us that that the confrontation at the heart of Christianity should throw people off balance. Instead of a confrontation that provides people with certainty and a safe haven from uncertainty, it actually plunges us into uncertainty. And that, for him, is going to be the unfinished work of the emerging church movement that I was talking about earlier. So he's going to try to demonstrate this by comparing the heart of Christianity to a magic trick. So he starts by talking about the once Archbishop of Canterbury, John Tillotson, who was the first person to make some interesting connections between the practice of magic tricks and the Catholic mass ceremony. So the first comparison Tillotson makes here is that he talks about the, the, the language that a magician uses to distract his audience during a magic trick. And that, that talking that distracts people is called patter. And it seems pretty likely that magicians came up with that word patter as a kind of mocking reference to the Latin phrase paternoster, paternoster. And the word paternoster refers to the repetitive prayers of priests that are supposed to bring people into a kind of meditative space. So whether you're a magician using patter or a priest using paternoster, you're kind of using words to pull people into an altered state of consciousness. You are a master of wordplay. So that's one similarity between magic and Christianity. But a more interesting similarity that Tillotson notices is the very explicit parody of religious words in the magician phrase, hocus pocus. And this phrase, hocus pocus, sounds an awful lot like the Latin phrase, Hoc est corpus. And that's that's Latin for this is my body, right? This is my body, this is my blood. Hoc est corpus is the Latin phrase said by priests when they pray over the communion bread. And what they're doing is uh, saying it to transform the bread into Christ's body. So Tillotson is a Protestant, so he's kind of poking fun at Catholic priests and agreeing with the magicians who view the Catholic Mass as superstitious nonsense. Um, Because, of course, Protestants believe the bread is just a symbol, not the actual body of Christ. Now, Peter Rollins is just going to make a slight change here. He says, you know, Tillotson is actually right. This is kind of a a magic trick that's going on, and it's wordplay. But that's actually what makes it meaningful. That is the essence of Christianity, is is that it is a magic trick. So to explore this idea, Rollins is going to talk about the traditional magic trick, which has three parts. And these three parts are called the pledge, the turn, and the prestige. So let's suppose that uh, you're at a pub and you want to impress your friends with a magic trick. 
Well, the first stage, the pledge, is where you take the coin and you hold it in front of your friends, right? You're just showing them that it's a plain, ordinary, old coin. The second part of the trick, the, the, the turn, is where you turn the item into something extraordinary. So, of course, you're going to make the coin disappear from the hand that was holding it. Now, the third stage, the prestige, is essentially the payoff to your friends. You reveal the quarter underneath your glass of beer. It somehow got there. Now, for Rollins, that last part is the most interesting thing about the magic trick. It's the secret behind the prestige and what makes it work. What in reality, not in the trick, but what in reality is happening with the reappearance of the coin? Well, Rollins says what's happening is this. The coin underneath the glass is not the same coin that disappeared. There are, in fact, two different coins. They look identical. One is slipped underneath the glass while no one is looking, and the other one the the magician makes disappear into his sleeve. And this is how the magic trick of Christianity works. You have two things that appear similar but one is made to disappear, and the other one reappears under the same guise. So two coins here, and let's talk about the one that is being disappeared. Christianity, says Rollins, is attempting to disappear something called the sacred object. And what the sacred object is, is anything that a person views as the final answer. Um, it's the thing that you think will fill the gap in your life, the thing that will, that will make you complete or the thing that will make your country finally into a utopia, right? Now in Judaism and in Christianity, you have this very prominent idea of idolatry and idolatry is, um, the practice of, of viewing something as being of a higher value than God. So the idea here uh, for Rollins and for older versions of Christianity is that you as a human being with bodily desires are always imparting things with value. You're always evaluating things. And it might be objects or ideas or people But whatever object or idea that you think will completely fulfill you, that is what Rollins calls the sacred object. And this is the coin that Christianity is attempting to make disappear. So to make sense of this idea of the sacred object, you really need to understand human desire. And Rollins is going to turn to to psychology to help him understand this. So he says that, you know, since Sigmund Freud uh, revolutionized psychology, we know something interesting about human desire, and it's this. Basically, the more we are prohibited from desiring something, the more we desire it. It's kind of an interesting paradox, right? So a baby, for example, who is sitting next to like a rattle or a toy or something, he might not be really playing with it, and he's not really interested in it. But as soon as another child comes over and steals that rattle, the baby becomes agitated and starts crying and all of a sudden desires that rattle. 
Now, something else that's interesting about desire is that you can kind of flip that process and reverse that process um, to understand it. So that actually having the object of your desire is what stops you from desiring it, right? So suppose you're bored in your marriage um, and you see a, a beautiful woman who's not your wife and you're filled with desire and you decide to act on it thinking it will make you happy. Um, well, you get what you want. You, you sleep with the woman and your wife leaves you. Um, but what you find out is that sex with this new woman is just about like sex with your wife after a while. And you realize that you and your wife actually had a strong relationship of trust. And now you just have the, the pathologies of the new woman instead without the strong bonds of trust you had with your wife, but you can't have your wife back. And so now you desire her and this kind of circle of desire goes on and on and on. So, so prohibition creates desire. And given that prohibition is what causes desire, you might think that it makes a lot of sense to just get rid of prohibitions and people will live in harmony. The problem, says Rollins, is that desire, though, is deeply pleasurable. Um, you know, take the example of the husband cheating on his wife. In that situation, there was more sexual pleasure derived from fantasizing about the other woman than there was when the husband uh, found out that the woman uh, didn't fulfill him, right? So the complicated thing here is that an object is made sacred by desire, but it loses its sacredness when we get it. So this is where Rollins starts to maybe get a little bit um, social and political. He says that ideologies or kind of organized belief systems that motivate human beings all tend to be built on this understanding of human desire, of how sacredness and prohibition produce a certain kind of pleasure. Um, and we might call that pleasure, you know, contentedness or comfort or any any number of things that our ideologies give to us. But no matter what, those ideologies are always built to sustain desire, um, specifically our desire for the sacred object, our desire for the thing that will complete us. But in order to sustain that desire, they need to ensure that we never get that thing that we want. They have to ensure that we never get the sacred object because if we did, the object would stop being sacred. So how do ideologies do this? How do they stop us from getting the sacred object? Well, they have something called a scapegoat. And I'm going to quote Rollins at length here because he explains the concept really well. Um, he writes this, quote, a scapegoat is that which we blame for not being able to get what we most desire. It is that which takes on the burden of our failure to get what we cannot reach, the sacred object. A clear expression of scapegoating occurs when some individual or community is collectively viewed by another community to be the obstacle preventing the attainment of their ultimate goal something one clearly witnesses in the way the figure of the Jew operates in fascist or Nazi ideology. In this ideology, the Jew is seen to disrupt the society's organic unity, tribal harmony, and collective identity, end quote. 
Um, so in that example, you know, the Jewish person in the Nazi mind, um, it's that's an extreme example, and it's easy to understand. Um, you know, the Jew is seen as preventing uh, the Nazis from re- reaching their kind of, uh, you know, German paradise. But you also run into scapegoating in everyday life as well. Uh, you might have that one family member who's constantly in and out of uh, romantic relationships. And, you know, um, in, it, you, that they might have partners who are perfectly good partners who they could, you know, get along with just fine in a, a marriage. But your family member is always cutting things off before things get too serious, right? Well, what's happening there? A psychologist might suggest that there's a subconscious process going on where the, the family member knows that nothing is ever going to fill that gaping hole or loneliness they feel inside. So instead of having a realistic relationship with another person who's unwhole, your family member they prefer to keep the illusion of a potentially perfect relationship. That illusion gives them more pleasure than the actual reality of a imperfect relationship, right? Rollins puts it this way, quote, When confronted with inner conflicts, we are tempted to obscure them by externalizing the antagonisms, something that is done through the hatred of others and or the hatred of the self. The more difficult, courageous, and ethical path involves attempting to face and tarry with the antagonisms, end quote. So remember what I said earlier, Americans, especially American evangelicals and American secular progressives, often feel very embattled and very surrounded, right, by opponents. The modern world is characterized by the antagonism between rival traditions. And that death of God feeling of incompleteness we feel is caused by our doubts uh, because we're aware of these rival traditions. But being able to have these intense feelings of dislike towards uh, whether it's Trumpers or towards Black Lives Matter protests is actually the process that allows us to maintain an image of the sacred object because it makes people feel that there is a wholeness that exists somewhere and it could only be obtained if it weren't for those pesky conservatives or those pesky liberals. This is the scapegoating process, right? Okay, so scapegoating, the sacred object, let's bring that back to the magic trick of Christianity. Scapegoating creates the imaginary sacred object, but Christianity, says Rollins, is a magic trick to make the imaginary sacred object disappear. And it is the event of the crucifixion of Jesus which makes this disappearance happen. Now, Rollins uses the word event in a pretty technical way here. Um, there's a couple of philosophers uh, you might check out if you're interested in this. Um, Jacques Derrida and John Caputo are both um, postmodern philosophers, and they talk about this idea of the event. And for them, an event is not just uh, the, the facts of something that transpires, right? The event is the generative potential that is waiting to be unleashed from 
those actions or from that small moment, right? Like that moment produces all sorts of subsequent moments and changes. And so specifically, there are they are often thinking about the disruptive potential uh, when they use the word event. So an event has this potential to disrupt the world. The crucifixion is an event in that sense, that it is a disruption that opens up a whole new realm of possibilities. Specifically, it is disruptive to ideologies because it makes scapegoats and the sacred object disappear. And without scapegoats and without the sacred object, ideologies cannot exist. Christianity is the event that explodes ideology for Rollins. So, so to understand why that's the case here, you need to wade through a lot of the ways that you're conditioned to think about the, the crucifixion and the resurrection story in Christianity. Um, if you go to um, divinity school, whether you're going to a, a liberal divinity school or a, a conservative Bible college, you're going to study something called soteriology. And soteriology is the study of salvation and how the crucifixion of Jesus makes salvation possible. And there's a lot of different versions of this out there, depending on, you know, what denomination you're in. Um, The earliest versions of this story in the Christian tradition uh, were basically that Christ had literally descended to the depths of hell to save Christians from the devil. It was a very epic kind of story in early Christianity. But in the Middle Ages, um, things get a bit more, um, it's it's a less narrative, uh, narrative understanding of what happens and kind of a more legal understanding. Um, first, um, you have a version where God pays a ransom to the devil um, in his death, and that's kind of the exchange, and the devil frees uh, you, you know, people from uh, the, the punishment for their sins. Um, then the, the later version, which is probably the most popular among Protestants now, is that when, when Adam and Eve sinned and we sinned, um, there needed to be justice done for that evil, for violating God's law, and that, that God's wrath is what we deserved. It was the appropriate punishment for what we had done. And so, what happens on the cross is that God unleashes his wrath onto Jesus, right? Some people have called this the monster God theory because God is just un, you know, unleveling on Jesus on the cross, and that's the kind of uh, legal process that makes salvation possible. So, obviously, all these different views have um, a lot of different implications, but what they all fundamentally agree on in some way is that this process Uh, directs us into a more whole life, Uh, whether that is directing us into eternal bliss in heaven or, uh, you know, in the Eastern Orthodox faith, uh, they believe that we are integrated into the divine life in a way we become divine with God uh, through salvation, uh, through Jesus. Now, Rollins says that actually something very different um, is happening in the Christ event, in the death of God on the cross. And he says that the the crucifixion is actually the means by which we are able to come into contact, the means by which we come into full confrontation, if you will, with something called the lack, the lack at the center of existence. 
And he's pulling this idea out from a very obvious part of the Christian story, but it's a part of the story that's often overlooked, even though it's very obvious. And that's the fact that in this story, it is it, we are told that God is dying on that cross. Remember, in Christianity, um, you have something called the Trinity. You have three parts that are co-equal that create the Godhead, and uh, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is, of course, the Son. And so when Jesus is on the cross, you have part of the Godhead dying. Part of the Godhead is, is up there on the cross. And one of the pivotal things you won't recognize if you aren't thinking about the fact of God's death on the cross is the significance of Jesus' last words. He says uh, this in the Aramaic. He says, Eli, Eli, el sepaktani. And what this translates to in English is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that statement is the key, not just for understanding the death of God, but also the resurrection for God. Remember the magic trick, the disappearance and the reappearance. Rollins says that what we are witnessing in Jesus making that statement is the self-estrangement of God. God is being disconnected or distanced or rejected by himself. There is, if you will, in that moment, a lack at the center of God. There is a lack in God himself. And and it is this centering or um, platforming, if you will, um, platforming a self-estranged God, that's what makes Christianity a radically unique religion from other religions in Rollins' view. Religion historically has, you know, been about the, the the oneness of God, the monism, right? You see that in Judaism and in uh, in Islam, especially. But what the the Trinitarian view allows for is this lack. Now, Jesus dies and he resurrects in the story, right? But here's the thing. The God who dies, the God who of completeness, is not the God who comes back. Crucified is the God who reflects our desires for the sacred object, for, for the thing that can create order and utopia in our lives. What's resurrected, it appears the same on the surface because it's Jesus one and the same, but what is resurrected is a God who upends our expectations and explodes them and propels us into the uncertain adventure of life. This is the event of Christianity, the event of the crucifixion and resurrection of God. Now, um, yeah, that's that is the magic trick of Christianity, guys. I, I hope that makes sense. I, I'm oh, I'm going through this very quickly, so check out the book um, if you want the details. But um, obviously, there's there's consequences of these ideas because it's so radically different than traditional uh, forms of Christianity. And so you have to ask yourself, well, you know, practically speaking. What would it look like if a religious community were to adopt Rollins' theological outlook? And he talks about that in the book quite a bit. So think about this again. The central moment in Christianity, according to Rollins, is one where the sacred object and the scapegoats in our lives disappear. So 
what you would want in practice is for Christian worship and Christian moral habits and Christian ways of life to reenact that moment. So for Rollins, uh, for a long time, he was leader of a Christian community called Icon. And uh, this community was actually pretty influential from what I understand uh, early on in the emerging church movement. And what they were big on was kind of reintroducing um, liturgy to evangelical Christians. Um, And liturgy is, of course, these uh, more you could call it the more material aspects of Christian worship that evangelicals weren't traditionally into, but, um, you know, it's the music, it's the art, it's the ceremony, the ways that our bodies are incorporated into worship. It's not just the, the rote or stale logic of the written word, but it's also um, the way that we experience the faith. And so in the icon community, basically, they would try to cultivate an atmosphere that would throw people off center and take people out of their certainties, whether that was, um, uh, you know, their fundamentalist religious certainties or their progressive, uh, liberally moral, morally liberal uh, certainties, and throw them into an uncertain frame of mind. Um, and so, you know, thinking about the failed emerging church movement, this is obviously pretty different than. Um, Mars Hill Church, which was one of those churches that was basically fundamentalist in theology, but, you know, had the rock and roll ethos and the tattoos and piercings and all that. And it's also different from uh, the more liberal emerging churches that ended up basically falling back into traditional Western liberalism. Um, you know, again, Rollins and the icon community were using uh, art and scripture and liturgy to, to throw people into uncertainty. Like they would do an event called Atheism for Lent, where they, uh, you know, looked at atheist beliefs because Lent is a time for, you know, soberness and to think about death. So, um, yeah. Now, Icon um, doesn't exist anymore from what I understand, but Rollins is still doing seminars and conferences um, that kind of teach these various disruptive liturgical tools. Um, and again, those are intended to reenact the disruptive event of the crucifixion and resurrection. Um so yeah, if you're interested, definitely check out the book um, for more details. And Rollins actually did a 10-part YouTube class. I think it's called uh, The Magic Trick of Christianity, and that's on YouTube. And I'll link it in today's show notes. Um, check that out. But I want to close with just a quick thought or two on what I think the significance of Rollins' work is. First, uh, I want to say that I think Rollins is asking all of the right questions if you think that it's a moral necessity to be asking a lot of questions of your moral tradition, right? Like that's, uh, th- that's the modern paradigm is you're supposed to question things. And if you're, you know, if you think that's right and you should be, you know, rationally thinking through things, um, I-, I think that Rollins gets the questions right. And this leads me to characterize Rollins, perhaps a bit negatively, as a kind of Protestant Christian on steroids. Like, in my view, if you really wanted to be committed to the Protestant project since Martin Luther and John Calvin, 
I think Rollins' brand of skepticism is more or less where you end up if you take this to its extremes. And um, you can judge, you know, from from this episode and from reading the book if that's for the better or the worse. Now, I'm sure saying that will probably piss off a lot of Protestants. But the reason I say that is because, um, you know, if you read uh, historians and philosophers like uh, Charles Taylor or Mark Knoll, what you find is that historically Protestantism and modernity or, you know, the age of enlightenment, these emerge at the same time and they're very codependent on each other. And what they both do is to place an incredibly heavy burden on the integrity and responsibility of the, the, the individual. And specifically, um, now I think there's a tremendous value to that, but, I, but what I want to point out here is that one of the specific responsibilities they place on the individual is, is on the individual's ability to reason and have knowledge that is trustable independent of a tradition that that constrains it with moral authority, right? Like you are to trust your rationality and knowledge, uh, you know, without it being guided by, you know, some pontiff or moral authority. Now, <laughs> I, I want to make, I want to say that Rollins shares some similarities with fundamentalists in this way. Because people, you know, they might view evangelical fundamentalists as like conformists or like blind sheep to religion, but I think that's just remarkably inaccurate, and only if you did not understand evangelicalism could you think that, because evangelicalism is really defined by a radical commitment to individualism and the individual's authority because of a direct connection they think they can have with God, independent of of a, a, a tradition, right? Um, and so this leads evangelicals to have a very big problem with moral authority. It's very similar to the problems with moral authority you might find in uh, progressive liberal uh, American circles. Like, look, for example, at what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. It's predominantly, right now as we speak, a populist revolt of congregants against the moral authority of leaders who are trying to guide the denomination. It is people at the lowest rungs who do not have theological training (laughs) who are revolting, calling their leaders, you know, um, saying that their the- that their leaders are apostates. Um, and if you follow the history of evangelicalism, this is very much in line with a big problem that evangelicals have always had with moral authorities. Now, I'm pretty sympathetic with Peter Rollins' embrace of, of uncertainty and leaning into the uncertainty of modernity. But I think that his kind of casual rewriting of 2,000 years of Christendom um, has some problems, right? Like he he says that, you know, well, all along it was wrong that Christians were looking for wholeness and fulfillment um, through their traditions. And that's just, um, it's a massive claim that only, I think, you know, a, a radical Protestant could make. And, um, you know, Rollins wants to lean into uncertainty and the, anti- into the antagonism that is caused by 
all the rival traditions in the world. But I think that that Protestant sensibility is in a way, it is a way of evading that antagonism because it's in a way trying to to reconcile his his tradition with with the, the, the modern world instead of actually being involved in that antagonism by being part of his tradition. Now, if he happened to uh, stumble across this video, I'd love to hear his response because I just love listening to him and I think he's a really um, neat guy from what I can tell. And again, I think he's asking all the right questions, um, but more than hearing him respond to me, I'd be interested in hearing him respond to um, the Catholic moral philosophers like Charles Taylor and Alastair McIntyre, because they're asking the same questions and thinking about the same problems of, of um, antagonism and modernity, but they are leaning farther into their traditions instead of trying to change the traditions, and they're not doing it with an air of certainty. Um, so it, it sets them apart from people who lean into their current beliefs as a way of kind of soothing or, or, or uh, shoving their uncertainty under the rug. So uh, again, Peter Rollins, if you're listening, I'd love to hear you uh, talk about Alastair McIntyre and Charles Taylor. Um, but yeah, um, really that's all I've got for today, folks. Um, Hope you enjoyed it. If if you enjoy hearing me talk about this specific topic, religion, um, it's really my bread and butter to talk about it. So let me know if you enjoyed it, if you want to hear more of it, or if there's something else you want to hear me talk about more um, or a book you want me to read. Again, you can send me a book from my Amazon wish list by clicking the link in the description. Um, also, please go over to www.burtreadsbooks.com uh, and subscribe to my blog because I do some exclusive reviews and writing over there that you might get a kick out of. So, until next time, take it easy. school with a fully crammer